Malcolm Holmline this week in Jerusalem. Yes, he's one of the lucky people on this globe who is in the holy city of Jerusalem. And Malcolm Holmline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations and joins us for the weekly update on this Friday morning. Mr. Holmline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Always good to be with you, but never better than from Jerusalem. Must be amazing there, and we wish we were there it's with beautiful. you. The weather is beautiful. The city is beautiful. So many amazing things being discovered and being found. So many wonderful places that people don't get to see. You really have to come, and it's not crowded now. It's a perfect time. Hmm, not crowded yet. I would guess sometime in the next couple of weeks it's going to get very crowded, I hope at least. <laughs> um, well, one of the problems we've discussed before is that when you know you have a, pe- per- a period of horizon, uh, some of the attacks and people then are hesitant to make reservations because they don't know, so you don't feel the impact until months later. And there's going to be a big upsurge in tourism in the fall because people now see it's safe and they're coming. But for a short period here, it's a hiatus, so I'm telling you it's a good time for people to come. Pack your bag now, and right after Shabbos, get on a plane. Plus a lot of people, I hope, and I hope I'm not fooling myself, are planning on being in Israel during 2017 because of the 50th anniversary of the reunification of Jerusalem, so they may be saving their trips for that period of time as well. I hope that is the case. Speaking of Jerusalem, by the way, uh, the passing of Dr. Irving Moskowitz, speak about somebody who had an impact on the present and future of the holy city of Jerusalem. And I posted that, uh, I'm paraphrasing, how all of us should be blessed to follow his example of his dedication to both Zion and Jerusalem. What a difference one man can make, huh, Malcolm? He made a huge difference. He was a very courageous donor. He gave to things that weren't always uh, in vogue, but had the foresight to see their importance and... um Certainly his passing should be mourned, and uh, we extend our condolences to his family and to the many, many people he worked with. There are a handful of family names that will go down in modern Jewish history as uh, those that were significant in the building of Jerusalem, and really, again, Israel in general, and I believe the Moskowitz name will be among them. And uh, I noticed, and this is a topic you and I have discussed many, many times, I noticed in his biography that um, a Time magazine had written that he lost, uh, he was already in the United States, he was born here in the United States in the 1920s, uh, but he lost 120 relatives during the Holocaust. That was the estimate. And uh, it, it is, again, amazing. And again, I know he's not a survivor, so to speak, but it is amazing that somebody who's, who's given the, the privilege and the fate to live on um, you know, takes full advantage of that opportunity here on Earth and, again, makes such an impact and such a difference. A topic that you and I have discussed many times, everybody out there, and especially the young people, I speak like an old man already, um, all the young men and women in this audience, uh, it, half the battle is realizing the type of impact you can have, and I know you agree with that. Absolutely. So there you have it. Uh, we remember Dr. Irving Moskowitz. Uh, why is there such a hesitation to you? And this is a term that you bravely and courageously, and I say that only half tongue-in-cheek, have used since the mid-'90s on these airwaves and in many other places. Why is there such hesitation from places like the White House and others to use the phrase Islamic fundamentalist, especially when it comes to an attack uh, that we saw this past uh, weekend down in Orlando? 
Well, the president explained why he doesn't do it, and he feels that it it uh, classes a group of people. I think it does the opposite. I think by identifying Islamic extremists and talking about Islamic fundamentalists and fundamentalism, you identify that segment that is engaged in it, and that, in fact, could protect the others or, or try to indicate that not all are. And when you refuse to do so, uh, I think it also raises another problem, that if you can't name it, you can't fight it. And if you can't identify what the enemy is very specifically, and using generic terms, and not just in this regard, but in general, when, when people use uh, generic terminology, then it's, um, it's counterproductive in, in the effort. And I think that, you know, the, the, um, we've seen that Arab countries and others have had less uh, restrictions on talking about it. And even CC this week talked about the need for reform in, in Islam. Uh, you know, we can't let political correctness run amok and, and undermine uh, the effort. And again, no, not all people should be branded, and it's, it's correct uh, uh, to, to make uh, distinctions. But when, when you see officialdom, when you see the media, when you see certainly the PA, for instance, not to identify the incitement and not to look at how funds, like from Europe now, there's uh, uh, reports about uh, additional funding and aid for, for um, uh, supposed to go for refugees and economies, in fact, going for many other, uh, uh, other purposes. And the, the failure to, to address that, to, to identify who's responsible, who's doing it, who's, who's involved in the incitement, you can't then uh, properly address it. Is it, um, is it detrimental to this effort of identifying uh, these killers as being Islamic fundamentalists that, 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 they, that they often, as in this case, are identified as ISIS sympathizers? Do, does the media sometimes have trouble understanding that, that ISIS and Islamic fundamentalism is essentially one and the same? Well, ISIS is one expression of it, and you have uh, many. Uh, some are religiously motivated, some are politically motivated, but the instigation, and this, especially when you see it on the Internet, affects them all. And the, the growth of these extremist movements has to be identified uh, and should have been many years ago, and this is true of many administrations of failing to, to identify and, and to build up those who are associated in the United States with some of these uh, organizations directly or indirectly, and when they get recognition by invitations of the White House, but even by appointments by White House, you undermine then the more moderate leadership, because they say, look, who gets the recognition of the most extreme guys, guys who had associations with the Holy Land Foundation, with other groups that were implicated in, in involvement with supporting terrorism, and then what, what is the message that you send? So you have to think about the ramifications of this in in a um, in a much broader uh, sense than than I think people try to to look at it in a very limited with a very limited lens. This is not the way you deal with global terrorism. Yeah. Uh, again, in reaction to what happened last weekend. So, uh, what what does it say to you? A failure of. Uh, intelligence agencies in the United States to identify certain people, you know, somebody falling through the cracks who they should have been able to identify and, uh, you know, and, and arrest, you know, a long time ago. Uh, what does it tell us about the, uh, the future in this country in terms of, you know, potential for more attacks and specifically for our community, which, you know, we always 
feel that uh, any major institution in our community is, or an even minor institution, you know, could be a target. What is the? What are the lessons in the aftermath of this? Well, I don't think we control all the lessons because we don't know all the facts about the guy, about his associations. Why was he at this club before, supposedly? So there are many things we have yet to learn. But the fundamental principles, and that's what I was referring to before, remain the same. The failure of the media to 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 address terrorists when we know that they are terrorists, to call them that, even though even using the term militants, I mean, to be a militant is not necessarily bad. You know, the founding fathers. Uh, Patrick Henry could have been described as a, as a militant. Others were described as militants in defense of liberty. So it, it is a neutralizing term and, and deflects from the true nature of, of the enemy that we, that we face, that we all face uh, collectively. And we've seen this week uh, a lot of information about Hezbollah, Hamas, about the growth of ISIS, al-Qaeda, continued um, expansion in some, uh, in some areas. And, it, you know, it brings to mind about the way the media treated it, that this is the 35th anniversary this week of the attack on the Osirak nuclear reactor in Iraq. And if you remember how the media reacted at the time, <laughs> the U.S. even cut off some aid to, uh, to Israel at the time, and, but there were round condemnations, and the media in particular uh, went after Israel for taking out a nuclear reactor. That action saved countless American lives in Iraq and in the conflicts in Iraq subsequently, and who knows what would have would have happened if they had deployed the nuclear weapons uh, at the time? And remember, the French were involved in, in helping Saddam Hussein build that uh, facility, and the um, and it staved off uh, perhaps a nuclear race that uh, now we are again facing with the Iranian developments. But for, it bought two decades, and the the world was so quick to condemn Israel and so quick to to identify. Um, the action in negative terms rather than recognizing and having the foresight to understand how important this step was. Yeah, no question about it. And what about the debate now as we see, you know, again, White House reaction and, and in many ways, you know, different reaction from different sides of the aisle, the debate on immigration freeze. Uh, I know this is a sensitive topic, especially for Jewish leaders. You know, should Jewish community leaders be out there uh, asking for um uh, for, uh, you know, a, a, a long, hard look at the United States immigration policies when, of course, the, you know, the Jewish community is very sensitive to that. Uh, and then, of course, we have presumptive presidential candidates who are calling for immigration freezes from certain countries for, just for this reason, the aftermath of this attack. Um, what should our position be when it comes to this topic? Well, as you said, it's very sensitive and it's very complex. It's something that needs a, a seminar, not a, an answer. And uh, and it is because it it has many ramifications. If you if you don't have any restrictions, if you don't have proper um, screening processes in place, just look at the testimony of people from the FBI and and uh, national security agencies talking about the infiltrations across the border, talking about the smuggling across the border, talking about the the presence of cells in the United States. And that should be a warning, and, and Canada as well. Canada had an open-the-door policy, and we saw how Hezbollah took advantage, building a huge presence around uh, in the Toronto area and, and others, um, other countries the same. So, you know, just because somebody thinks that there has to be restrictions doesn't make him a racist. Sometimes people use language that sounds racist, and that demeans and undermines the uh, serious and a serious approach uh, to this issue, it requires a serious approach. Yeah, um, and I know that uh, you know the, the, 
you like to focus on other elections other than the presidential one, but just in, in this case, uh, sometimes it's frustrating, especially so during debate season, sometimes it's frustrating that foreign policy and all these important issues are never addressed. Do you think that this will, I know there are other important issues, economy, etc., but do you think that this will, in fact, be a big focus this summer as the real debates uh, get set into action and the conventions and the uh, platforms uh, you know, become uh, public information, so to speak? Do you think we'll finally well, I think it'll see be this? one of the issues, obviously, that's discussed, and it's a high-profile issue, and for certainly for some communities it can be a decisive issue, for others an important one, and for others maybe less significant. But anybody who predicts anything about what's going to happen in this election, <laughs> I think, is not somebody you could take seriously. There's nobody who knows what's going to happen. Everything has so far been unpredictable, and I think it's a time of, of huge flux. When I see it from abroad and see the questions that are being asked now, confused people are. And when I ask it would be about what's in America, I said it's the same thing. People are confused. People are, are uh, there, there is a sense of, um, uh, of uncertainty, not just about the election, but also, you know, the, the other elections that are not getting the attention, which is the elections for Congress, for the Senate and House, which are also very important, if sometimes even more important, and it's where communities can have a greater impact, uh, and individuals have a greater impact in voting directly, and, and because of the, you know, nationwide poll, the, the smaller groups have less of a, of a push, although every vote counts and every vote is important, and especially in a state like New York with all the electoral college votes that are here, California, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Florida, other places where you have large Jewish communities. So I think that um, no one knows what issues are going to come up between now and the election. We don't know what's going to happen in the U.N. We see already the, the charges, countercharges uh, coming in uh, over the last few days uh, regarding um, the missile defense program, regarding the, the um, this Gaza defection and the information that will be called from there about the whole tunnel policy, a laptop full of information now turned over to, to the Israelis uh, by a man who's rumored to be a key guy in the whole structure, maybe the key guy. Uh, but, you know, the revelations that have come out about, you know, what's happening in the region, about the growth of, of various groups that ISIS has finally been taken on in Libya, but the, the growth of al-Qaeda in a, in a lot of places that has not been the focus of much attention. And the, the changing dynamic inside the, the wars in Syria, Lebanon, uh, and uh, involving Iran, involving Russia, involving a lot of parties. So all of these things could become, and, and certainly the Brexit issue, could mm. be uh, a dominant issue with its ramifications, which will have grave economic and other and political implications, well, not only for Europe, but for the world. It seems the Brexit issue has already led to the murder of a British uh, member of parliament. Uh, which of course, so. yeah, which of course happened yesterday. And I wanted to ask you about the ramifications of that. I mean, what, what, and again, you know, I don't know, I don't know what's beneficial for our community or the Jewish, you know, worldwide or the Jewish community in Great Britain. But I mean, what are the ramifications depending on how this vote goes? Well, I think the economic and political ramifications are, are going to be great. And people, I'm, I'm not an expert economist. It's not a subject I enjoy. But uh, I know that the Chinese and others are going to look and see if the euro falls because of this uh, and is weakened further, which strengthens the dollars, and they will want to flood the market with dollars to bring it down. I mean, I've heard many analyses about all the possible ramifications can make your head spin. 
when you think about uh, what what it will mean, does it mean uh, Europe, uh, England becomes more isolationist? When we see all of the parties rising in Europe that are um, that favor isolation and talk about a revision of of the European history, and some who want to go back to to what was and not what is, and that if you remember years ago, I spoke on uh, I spoke here and elsewhere and said that I think Europe is moving on two plateaus at the same time. Mm. At, at one towards unification, one towards disunification. And we are seeing it in more and more prominent ways. And what happened in England can be replicated elsewhere. There are, Spain has a referendum coming up soon. So this integration of the EU would have uh, consequences that I think can't be predicted now. But think of the economic implications, what happens to Greece, what happens to all of the common efforts. Do they sustain those things? Do they, do they get endangered by it? Uh, and with the rise of the extreme parties in Europe, and uh, we saw it in, in, in Austria, where it was a very narrow defeat of, of an extreme right party. Um, how will this affect then the future political trends? Do you know if the Jewish community in, uh, in Great Britain is uh, overwhelmingly on one side or the other side of this issue? As far as I know, they are, pro- they are supportive of staying in the EU. But I'm sure there are exceptions, I know. Yeah, I'm sure of that. Uh, it's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard and listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 in the FM Dial Broadcasting Live from the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey. Around the world on the web, jmdm.org, of course, on the NSN app. But Malcolm Holmline is with us from uh, Jerusalem, Israel. As we talk about the events of the week here during the weekly update, now I'm a little bit confused about the whole uh, issue when it comes to the uh, missile defense systems. You you released a statement, um, uh, formally it called the Obama administration decision to formally object to a proposed increase in funding by Congress to Israel for missile defense very troubling and a disturbing departure from the prior practice of this and previous administrations. And I saw other sources where uh, where it seemed to me that the White House in fact was going to support. Um, uh, more uh, funding um, for Israel's missile defense system. What is the latest update? What is going on there in Washington? Well, both are correct. You're right. So uh, let me just explain a little bit. You know that the uh, the Congress submitted its defense budget, and they, uh, uh, I think it's called, up-pushed uh, uh, the amount of money for the Iron Dome and David Sling uh, project to $600 million. I think the administration asked for less than uh, $150 million. And every year for the past years, that has been true. And the administration accepted the increased amount, and uh, it was allocated. The And remember that this is critical to U.S. security as well, because the developments of this anti-missile program by Israel um, is used in the United States. It's deployed here, and it's... It, it's uh, the it, it provides uh, benefits to protecting our own troops and our own borders. So it's not just for Israel. This this is a joint program, and they they all uh, benefit from it. So the administration then said, well, they have committed in the negotiations for the 10-year deal, the MOU, that's the Memorandum of Understanding that's being negotiated now, that they would include an annual uh, allocation, but the because in the past it was... Every year they had to come in new. Here they were saying that they would guarantee it for the 10 years. The problem is at what level? And, and here the, what was troubling is that in the past where they accepted it, and the MOU does not affect this year, 
doesn't come into effect till 2017, uh, that the amount of money, w- and given the developments this year, the Iranian missile program, the launching, the testing of, of long-range missiles, the 150,000, 120,000 missiles that are in, in uh, Hezbollah's hands, and we know many of them are more sophisticated, more better guidance systems, the missiles, the thousands of missiles that Hamas has, I mean, those alone would be reason why there should be increased amount and increased protection provided to, that Israel should be able to defend its citizens with these programs that have proved so effective. Uh, certainly the Iron Dome was, and David Sling has, and, uh, you know, by having more levels that you can deal with short-range, medium-range, and long-range missiles uh, pr- provides uh, additional protection. So our hope is that, that uh, the increased amount will be approved for this year, and then it, they will reach the understanding and have a long-term uh, understanding that the, the the missile defense aid will be uh, guaranteed every year. Do you think the White House uh, used this approach because it's the final year of the Obama administration? Well, it could be because uh, some have speculated that it's because of putting pressure on Israel to negotiate the Memorandum of Understanding. Uh, uh, some, I'm sure, will argue that the, when you look at the budget cuts in America, the allocations towards America's missile defense program, um, there are, are there's a lot of speculation. I don't want to get into that. Uh, I'm interested in the result, and that is that Israel is able to defend itself and provide benefit to protecting Americans. But the speculation is so much fun, Malcolm. That's true. It's you know it's one of the best parts of the whole thing is speculating. <laughs> um, well, there's there's so much to speculate about this week with with all of the announcements and and very relevant to this that uh, you see that Hezbollah and Iran are are putting reinforcements in Syria with more Hezbollah uh, um, terrorists coming up. They said maybe a thousand more who've come in, and um, uh, some say that they have now more than 10,000 troops in, in Syria, uh, and uh, about 95% of the Hezbollah terrorists have had uh, experience fighting in, in Syria, and at the same time, Iran is recruiting uh, people to come to, to Syria. You know, they have 3 million Afghans in, in Iran, uh, and only about a third of them are legal, so they give all sorts of inducements, including $700 a month and uh, a promise of, of citizenship I guess if they survive, <laughs> um, for people to 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 sign up, and the uh, and they're taking these mercenaries from for, for Syria, they're Afghanis, Iraqis, Pakistanis, uh, and others, um, and of course Hezbollah. So the the uh, that that was one thing, and the warning that the Minister of Intelligence gave that uh, to Nasrallah, uh, and and used his name that. Uh, because we're now marking the 10 years since the second Lebanon war, mm-hmm. uh, warning him about the nature of the next conflict. And there have been other warnings saying, you know, many Lebanese will die if Hezbollah continues on the, on the direction uh, that it's going. They've, they've lost more than 1,000 guys in the war in Syria, so they're not in the same uh, position. But the death of uh, Mustafa Bardin, if you remember, who was the head of their operations in Syria, has cost them because they, they seem to be more disorganized uh, in Syria. And um, that's why maybe they're sending in more troops and want to make sure that they have that presence uh, uh, secured. But They're funded the, uh, by Iran, right? Pardon or, me? Are they funded by Iran? Hezbollah is, Hezbollah is funded by Iran. 
and uh, in part, in large part, but they also have all these terrorist operations, including in the United States, and businesses and all sorts of front groups, especially uh, the narco trade in, in drugs, going for, which is just exposed this week again. Very large amounts going from South America via Africa into Europe. Uh, these things provide huge amounts of money for them uh, the, uh, the, uh to, to support their activities, which remember are global, so they have to yeah. Pay for I mean, I, I would think operations. It w- I would think places. it would I would think it wouldn't be difficult for them to get reinforcements and additional financial support with the Iranians behind them. Well, but Iran had cut back because of its own financial situation. Had to cut back on the aid that was being given to. Uh, and it's one of the issues why people argued against the increased money because right. they're saying that money will then go to the coffers of these terrorist groups that they are continuing to support. They had to cut the. T- they had to cut the terror budget, huh? The line item. They have to, they have to reduce it certainly. Yeah, the line item was and, terror. And you know, the, there were some assessments this week about that Iran, in fact, was getting more economic relief than had been previously uh, estimated, or whether the money that was frozen, um, it, it seems that, in fact, that money is is, uh, um, is flowing. And we saw that Iran Air was cleared for flights to Europe, and uh, there were clashes this week between the Iran Revolutionary Guard and the Kurds in Iran. Mm. Um, and the uh, the foreign minister of Iran was in Germany, which had vowed not to normalize ties. Yet what we saw there was certainly looking like they were moving to normalize ties. Right. And in that context, the warning from the intelligence minister that uh, to Nasrallah, and by the way, the warning to Hamas that this will be the last war with Hamas, that Israel doesn't want to control Gaza, but they're not going to tolerate an endless war of attrition. Uh, these warnings coming in, in in one week are very interesting and are sending strong messages uh, to them. I didn't even know that that message was supposed to be taken seriously, frankly, because we've heard that before about this being the last war with Hamas. But you're saying, well, that- I think the message is that the last times Israel acted with restraint because they they uh, you know the Lebanese were not the army was not part of uh, Hezbollah wasn't part of the Lebanese army they were merged today they're part of the government, they're part of the same entity, and so infrastructure, other things become legitimate uh, uh, targets. And the uh, Hamas, which has proven that it can't be a partner, that, that any of the materials that Israel sends in, they steal, they, they uh, take the cement, which the international community presses them and presses them to send in more, and they use it then for missile uh, base and, and the tunnels. So what is Israel's warning is to the people and to others saying, you better understand. I mean, when Hamas celebrated the, t- the, the killing in Tel Aviv by the, the terrorists, you know, it, it, the people of Israel react very negatively to that. So Even t- Saudi Arabia sent messages of condolences. So two years ago when, uh, when Israel decided to end you know, the war in Gaza when it did, uh, they they knew essentially they'd have to come back at some point. I mean, they were criticized, you know, within the country itself. They were criticized for quote unquote not finishing the job, uh, but they knew that they'd have to come back at some point and 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 take care of things. And uh, I, I I'll say this: I hope it is the next war where eventually they're not going to have to go back after that because it seems like each and every time, you know, an operation takes place and uh, there's loss of life and. Israeli society is turned on its head, and uh, and the job is not finished. So, I hope the threat is real, as you just described. Well, but what I think, I think it does is to set a marker as a warning 
to the nations of the world because they're all going to condemn Israel when Israel has to act. And maybe the information they got about how extensive the tunnels are in the whole network, we know that in Gaza itself they, they have built, and, and people in Gaza have been giving information uh, without identifying themselves to, to reporters and others, telling how at night they hear the rumble of trucks and the digging and the construction that's going on. Uh, and they don't want to become targets. So maybe this is a message to the Leb- to the Gazan people, to the Lebanese people, that you better take responsibility for your future and your security because Israel has to do the same for its people. And to the international community, don't come back and cry crocodile tears. We're warning you now about what the consequences of, of this continuing threat uh, will be. And Israel, as I think I mentioned last week, is taking steps. They're carving out cliffs in the, in the north there putting in all sorts of intelligence information, putting in uh, other observation facilities to uh, be able to monitor any effort to, to cross the border. But don't you agree? I mean, you, the, the, the people in Gaza are at the mercy of the corrupt Hamas leaders. I mean, it's not really up to them to try to take control over what Hamas is doing. Uh, yes, but you're, 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 the people there do have a voice and they, it is true that, that uh, Hamas is, is, uh, is brutal and the executions prove it. But, you know, the people have to take responsibility for their future as well. And they elected them at one point. And, um, and Israel's saying two things to them. One, we have no interest in going back into Gaza and taking Gaza and having to be responsible, you know, day-to-day for it and to control it. But on the other hand, you have to look at the situation we face, and, and the world doesn't have sympathy for Israel's side. You know, they, they, they may issue a statement about a, to condemn an attack on Stayrot or something on their innocent lives, as we saw in, in Tel Aviv. But by and large, they say, look, Israel's strong, Israel's the power. But when you're fighting terrorists, it's, it's an asymmetric war every time. And so I think Israel is positioning itself with this to a degree. Yeah. Uh, you were, by the way, on the subject of uh, of Iran and its influence and the money, etc., so I, I'm sure you saw what Ben Rhodes said this week, that essentially, <laughs> essentially the only benefit to the Iran deal, which of course he helped orchestrate and make sure it got passed, is that we've delayed, and it's funny, you, I say this as you just mentioned, the, uh, the, the decades that were bought, you know, by Menachem Begin's act 35 years ago with Iraq, uh, that they've that they've basically have uh, you know bought uh, some years without uh, Iran having a nuclear weapon, without having a nuclear bomb, and and essentially saying, isn't that worth it? Is it? You know, with everything that went on, even if they even if nothing's changed with the Iranian foreign policy, and even if Iran is going to be you know loaded with money now, isn't it worth it? This Iran deal because they're going to be delayed in the development of a nuclear weapon. The, the problem with that logic is that you have stated that you don't think this is going to delay their development of a nuclear weapon. Well, I do think it has delayed, and I think that there are obviously some benefits when you take out the, as much enriched uranium. Uh, I don't understand why we're buying the heavy water from them, which is shipped out, but uh, you know, we're only encouraging them to continue it. We should just tell them to stop and not buy the um, uh, heavy water that they're producing, but in in general, one has to say, look, it does stop. And but the argument all along was that this was never designed to put an end to the to the nuclear program, and that's why I keep arguing now about looking at it beyond the nuclear deal because you can offer justifications. You cannot offer any justification for the failure to act against the missile development program, which is a clear violation of UN security resolutions, a clear threat to the United States because these are ballistic missiles not intended for Israel because 
Israel, they don't need that. They can use the Scuds and shorter-range missiles. Uh, the, the continued support for terrorism, the undermining of, the, of our allies and regimes in the region, the support for Hamas and, and Hezbollah, and the global efforts, which one day we have to really talk about, especially about in South America and elsewhere, in Africa. Every leader I meet from Africa now talks about Iran, the danger posed by Iran, the support of Iran for terrorist organizations. And the the uh, the failure to address those issues and get people to understand that the the deal, which was supposed to yield a less aggressive Iran, has in fact yielded a more aggressive Iran, and that we have given them entree into Iraq, into Syria, there in Yemen, and they they have not, not diminished their footprint; they're expanding it. Yeah. Uh, was there a big deal made about this new construction in uh, in East Jerusalem, Jewish construction? I mean, I saw a news story about it, but I don't know if there was any official American or other reaction to it that was detrimental to Israel. Well, there, there's always criticism of any construction that Israel engages in. I mean, they're not looking at the proportion of new Arab construction, uh, which doesn't get condemned. Yeah. Um, and there is criticism that Israel demolished uh, a number of houses. Um so there is always it's an ongoing chorus of uh, criticism. Whether there'll be specific consequences, we don't know. But you hear this this mantra, and I heard it from uh, a European foreign minister this week, and from other officials I met uh, during the course of the week. You know where they you know talk about the, the construction of settlements and the settlement expansion, et cetera, and uh, always arguing about a freeze and how we have to create conditions. When I remind them that Netanyahu did have a ten month freeze, there were other freezes. You know, they forget all about that. And the, the, you know, if there's a freeze, I think it should be universal so that you don't have any change on the ground until you have negotiations. But even that is not going to yield and didn't yield the result expected because Abbas has to be willing to negotiate. Yeah. That's why you had all the talk this week and why Netanyahu others talk about the Arab initiative, bringing in the, making it regional, that you're not going to break through with Abbas. And as long as he's in power, he's not going to jeopardize his position. Uh, he clearly, um, you know, he's 80 years old, he, he's tired, he did whatever. But we have to stop arguing that he's better than the alternative when he is the obstacle. Does, does, I think there's growing sentiment in the PA about this as well. Does CC openly uh, uh, criticize him for not getting to the negotiating table? Uh, I think he has expressed his concerns about uh, Abbas's failure. When Abbas met with him, I know that he raised it. Uh, I think Sisi has, you know, tried to put forward and use his position, and, and Netanyahu uh, sort of welcomed it uh, and has uh, looked and in, in asked for the, um, uh, the Saudi plan, you know, the Arab Peace Initiative, as they called it, to be revised and that uh, to make it more acceptable that Israel could use it as a basis for opening to negotiations. But they're saying, look, if you can negotiate and show that all of the Arab world will come and recognize Israel, that they will be guarantors of Palestinian behavior if they can, um, and, and put the pressure on the Palestinians to deliver, just as you know that there will be immense pressure on the Israelis. I don't think that this is anything imminent. I don't think that the conditions are there for negotiations yet. But there is certainly growing international pressure, and we're going to see it at the U.N. and, and other places over the coming months. How far it will go is the question, not whether it will happen. And speaking of the U.N., um, uh, the United Nations election of Israel to chair an important U.N. General Assembly Permanent Committee on International Law. How significant was that this week? Well, I, I think it is important, and any time, at a time when we, we all 
see how the UN is, is lining up agency after agency to criticize Israel, singing out Israel alone, World Health Organization, uh, etc., uh, where it's so ludicrous that Israel, the Rights of Women Committee, um, singling out only Israel, in fact, and having all of these great democracies, you know, Iran, Iraq, Syria, etc., voting to condemn them. Uh, and unfortunately, Europeans cowardly joining in some of these votes at the World Health Organization with Israel's record of taking in Syrians and the Gazans and treating even Hamas uh, officials, uh, families, etc. And their efforts around the world from Haiti to, to Nepal to provide the field hospitals and medical care, etc. to, to um, people far beyond their borders. And yet they're singled out for this. And so the election to the Sixth Committee you know that the UN is organized around regional groupings. There's one called WIAG, West European and Others Group, because it's West Europe, but also U.S., Canada, Australia, others belong to it. Israel, because it couldn't join the uh, Arab bloc or the Middle East bloc, uh, joined the Western European and Others Group. And they, they, it was their turn to have the chairmanship. You know, it rotates. And usually it's done by acclamation. Here they had to go to a vote, and they got 107 uh, 109 supportive votes. Um, there were about 58 abstentions and some votes against. But the the um, the fact that I had to go to a vote was an unusual uh, step in this process. But I think it it shouldn't diminish the uh, recognition that this and the United States played a very constructive role helping to to push this. Uh, and the Committee on Legal Affairs can, of course, address serious issues. Uh, looks like Yalon is throwing his hat into the ring for the next Israeli election already, by the way. That ring is getting pretty full. There's a lot of people talking. Barack also subsequently uh, oh, really? indicated that he might return. Um, people are talking about many other candidates. Uh, the situation here, obviously, the political situation is a little tumultuous, but I guess it always is. Uh, there's... Uh, you know all these reports, daily reports of some scandal or the other, and the um, you know I, I find uh, you know I'm concerned about the sentiment, the political sentiment I hear. But people are frankly much more concerned about what's going on in the United States. It's the one question everybody asks. You know, he stopped me in the streets. I was at, spoke at a conference uh, yesterday, and it's the only issue people want to talk about is is the presidential election, and I won't because, as I said, I believe it's. It has deterred us from addressing very serious issues, and including the congressional elections and, more importantly, the substantive issues. But uh, I would say that there is a, a, um, some pol- a mood of political unrest. It's not the first time Netanyahu has weathered it before, and whether he can this time, and obviously we'll see. Live from Jerusalem, we thank Malcolm Holmline, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Malcolm, enjoy Shabbat in Yerushalayim. Uh, thank you. I, I just wanted to tell one other thing that I thought was important this week was a Reuters study about 90 cases in court cases in the United States of Islamic State terrorists. And you remember I kept saying that, that they don't get attention, but there's almost every month a case against an Islamist. These are 90 cases in recent years um, against Islamic State terrorists in the United States. Three quarters were not isolated, but part of a group. So when we see all of the ideas that they're always lone wolves, there are always, in, in the vast majority of cases, less than 10 of them acted alone. The rest all had some sort of a co-conspirator, and, uh, you know, even in isolated areas. So uh, this is a study since, I think, 19, uh, 2014. 
so when people read in the papers and they right away jump to conclusions about loan, not loan, take a look at it and understand that uh, I think the dynamics are very different. Oh, no question about that. Uh, thank you very much. Have a wonderful Shabbos. There he is in Yerushalayim, in Jerusalem. Malcolm Holmline at JM and the AM Weekly Update one week from now. We will pick up all these issues again here at JM and the AM.